there was a treasure ship that was on its way to its home port, and so they were on the open sea and lookout, watching for any other ships that might be approaching, and, and suddenly he saw through his glass that there was a pirate ship rapidly approaching their ship, and so he called down to the first mate who told to the captain, Captain, what do we do? What do we do? And the captain told him, well, first mate, I want you to go to my my cabin, and I want you to get my sea chest and open it up, and I want you to get out my red shirt. So I want you to get my red shirt, bring it to me. So he did that. Captain put on his, his red shirt, and he and the crew fought valiantly, and they were able to fend off the pirate ship. A couple of days later, they're, they're still sailing home. Lookout sees not one pirate ship, but this time he sees two pirate ships out in the distance rapidly approaching. So he calls down to the first mate. First mate says to the captain, 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 what do we do? Captain says, first mate, I want you to go to my cabin. I want you to get my my sea chest, open it up, get my red shirt out, bring it to me. So he did that. Again, captain put on his red shirt. Again, the the crew fought valiantly through the, the courageous leadership of their captain, and they fended off both pirate ships. Well, that night they're celebrating, and, and, and so the first mate comes up, and he says, I, Captain, we, we, we will follow you wherever you lead us, but I just have one question. What is the deal with the red shirt? Why, why do you keep asking me to bring the red shirt? And, and the captain said, well, a little secret. If I happen to be wounded in battle, and I'm bleeding, if I have the red shirt on, my troops won't know that I'm wounded, and they'll continue to fight fearlessly whether I am wounded or not. And the first mate was just moved by this, the courage of his captain. And so they went on and they're getting closer to home. A few days later, this time the lookout looks out and he sees not one, not two, but 10 pirate ships headed in their direction, rapidly approaching. Lookout calls to the first mate. First mate calls to his captain. He says, captain, captain, what do we do? Do you want me to go get your red shirt? Captain turns to him and he says, no, go get me my brown pants. Some of you are going to get that in a few seconds. Needless to say, there's something to be said for preparing for battle. Speaking of preparing for battle, we are in a series, as you can see, Armor Up, in which we're walking through the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, where he tells us to put on our armor, to prepare for battle, not by putting on our red shirt or our brown pants, but by putting on the armor of God putting on the full armor of God. And so Ephesians chapter 6, we'll start in, in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one." So far in our series, in our Armor Up series, we've looked at the first three pieces of armor. We've looked at the, uh, the belt of truth. We've looked at the breastplate of righteousness. We've looked at, the, uh, at having our feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That's what we looked at last week. 
And then today we come to the fourth piece of armor, the next piece of armor, and that is the shield of faith. There, there were basically two main types of Roman shields that they would use. One, if you've seen movies like Gladiator or 300 or some of those, you know, uh, you know, old Roman type movies, you've probably seen the round shield, right? This smaller shield, somewhere around two feet in diameter. Um, basically, it was for easy maneuverability. And so what you would have is this, this shield that was held in place by straps of leather on your arm. And then you'd have a small dagger, a small sword in the other hand. It was for hand-to-hand combat a lot of times, easy maneuverability. But there was another type of shield that you've probably seen as well, and it's actually the one that Paul is talking about here. The small shield is not what he's talking about. It's not the word that he uses. But the word he uses um, describes the shield that is very big. It's about four and a half by two and a half, three feet in height and in width, roughly the size of a refrigerator door. And I specifically use that instance or that example for a reason because the word for shield in the Greek actually originally meant a door or an entrance. It came to be known as a shield because it was, you know, that's how big, or that word was used to describe a shield because that's how big these shields were. They were quite large. Now, a couple of things about them. They were made of wood, but a lot of times they were covered in leather. So they'd cover them in leather. And then what they would do is they would rim the outsides of the shield in metal. Sometimes they were covered in metal. Most of the time, though, they were covered in leather, and then they were rimmed with metal all around the edges. And there were two fundamental things that I think are important to understand, because we're going to go there in just a second. Two fundamental things that they would do with their shields. First of all, one of the things that they would do when they were going into battle, again, they're covered in leather, they're, they're wrapped with leather, is they would soak their shields in water the night before they would go into battle. So they would take their shields, they would soak them in water so that they're fully hydrated before they go into battle. And so they did this because in that day and age, as we just read, they were accustomed to seeing flaming arrows. Flaming arrows would be shot at them, either arrows or, or javelins. And so what you had is you, you, they would take these arrows or they would take these javelins and they would tip them, they would take the tips of them and they would cover them with some kind of combustible um, compound and they would set them on fire, and then they would shoot them or throw them into the ranks of the enemy. And they did this for a couple of reasons. A, not only would an arrow or a javelin be capable of killing someone or injuring someone, but also it'd be capable of burning up not only the soldier or the shield, if it wasn't properly soaked, or the ground around you. Because what would happen is even if it fell off your shield and you deflected it with your shield, Oftentimes it could fall on the ground and what you would have is just this combustible material that's all over the ground, fire all over the ground. And so before you know it, there's fire everywhere. And instead of advancing on behalf of the kingdom and and advancing against the approaching army, you're putting out fires at your feet. Soldiers are putting out fires at their feet. And if their shield is not properly soaked, not only do you have a burning shield, but you also have burning all around you. And so they would soak their shields in water not only so their shields wouldn't burn up, but also if it did fall to the ground, they could just smother it and stamp it out. Does that make sense? The other thing they would do is they would use their shields collectively, either as barriers of defense or to advance against an approaching army. Specifically, they adopted, and I love this, uh, if you've ever done any research on, on Roman warfare, they adopted what was called the tortoise formation because basically it made a big shell. So the, the, I told you that the shields were wrapped or, or trimmed in, in metal. 
So what they would do is they were made to kind of interlock together. That's what they made them for. So they could interlock on the tops, on the sides, on the bottom, and then they could form this shell that was basically impenetrable. Either as a barrier defense, they could set it up. You can't shoot a javelin through that or throw a javelin through that. You can't shoot an arrow through that. You can't get into that. And also it's very effective when you're going forward and advancing as an army. Now I tell you those things because I think it's very powerful imagery that Paul is using here. And as we've talked about that, I was talking with someone this morning, you know, it's very easy to look at these these pieces of the armor and just talk about, you know, as we talk about the belt of truth, well, let's just talk about truth. Or to talk about the breastplate of righteousness, well, let's just talk about righteousness. Or to talk about feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, well, let's just talk about peace. Or this morning, shield of faith, let's just talk about faith. But I think there's something very in particular that Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to convey to us when he talks about these different pieces of the armor. There was a very specific purpose for the shield for a Roman soldier, and there's a very specific purpose, I think, for us that we can learn from the example of the Roman shield. So what does Paul mean when he talks about taking up the shield? We'll get to some of the inferences from the Roman soldiers in just a second. But the first thing I would say, and this is first thing in your notes, is the power is not in our faith, but the power is in the object of our faith. The power is not, the power of our shield of faith is not in our faith or in our shield, but it's in the object of our shield of faith. It's not simply about having faith. It's about having faith in God. And maybe you don't see the distinction, but, but I, I think it's important to understand. I love what, what Charles Spurgeon, author and uh, preacher said. He said, our life is found in looking unto Jesus not in looking to our own faith. By faith, all things become possible to us, yet the power is not in the faith, but in the God in whom faith relies. There's a lot of Christians who will will say things like, and I know we mean well, but we'll say things like, you just gotta have faith. You just gotta believe more. You gotta have more faith. And, And certainly faith requires me to still believe and to walk it out personally in my own life. But this is not about having faith in your faith. It's not about having more faith so that you can rely on your faith even more. This is about having a shield of faith in God. Having a shield of faith isn't simply about me believing more or trusting more. It's about me believing in God and trusting in him, the God as revealed through scripture and most perfectly through his son, Jesus Christ. The very first verse that we read just a moment ago, I think says this very succinctly. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Like that's how Paul starts this whole section off so that we understand it's not about just us having more faith or putting on an armor that is because of uh, our own abilities and putting it on or fighting with it on. It's, It's a strength that comes from God, from having a faith in him. It's not the power of our faith, it's the power of the God that we serve and that we believe in and we trust in through faith. And so taking up the shield of faith is about having faith in something in particular. It's about having faith in him. It's it's not about just making the decision to believe more or trust more. It's deciding, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to to believe in him. Because it's not, the, the, the difference isn't made in the size of your faith. The difference is made in the size of the object of your faith. And when you're, the object of your faith is, is, is God, that he's plenty big enough. He's plenty big enough to make 
all the difference. I, I love how author Tim Keller puts this. He, he wrote a book called The Reason for God. But he says this about faith. I, I really like how he puts it. He said, the faith that changes the life and connects to God is best conveyed by the word trust. If you imagine you're on a high cliff and you lose your footing and you begin to fall, just beside you as you fall is a branch sticking out of the very edge of the cliff. It's your only hope and it's more than strong enough to support your weight. Now, if your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, your loss. Let me say that again. If your mind is convinced intellectually that the branch is strong enough to save you, but you don't reach out and grab it, you will be lost. If, however, your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Because, and I love this last line, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. I love that. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Because it's not the the size of your faith that makes the difference. It's the size of the object of your faith. And when God is the object of your faith, he's plenty big enough to handle it. Now, again, that's not to say that we don't have some responsibility in this. God is constantly calling you and me to deeper levels of commitment and trust and obedience and faith, but it's the object of your faith that makes the difference, not how big your faith is or how great of a Christian you might be. Secondly, I I think taking up the shield of faith means understanding that the enemy is going to bring some fire. There's going to be some fire in this battle, okay? This is not like a water balloon fight. There's going to be some fire that the enemy is going to bring. Flaming arrows should not be a surprise. That's why we've been given shields in the first place. You don't have a shield as a fashion statement so that you look the part on the battlefield, right? It's not about a fashion statement. You have a shield because you're, it's designed to be used. There are flaming arrows that are coming at you. The reason you have a shield is because you're going to need it, right? So often when we go through struggles, and, and I've heard people say these things, and I've, I've talked with people about these things. When we go through difficult seasons in our life and we go through a hard time, it, it's very easy to ask questions or say things like, well, I have faith. I, 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 or at the very least, I want to have faith. You know, I, I'm trying to trust in God. I don't understand. Why is this happening to me? Right? We'll ask those questions. I, I have faith. I'm trusting in God. Why is this happening to me? Now, I understand from an emotional standpoint why we ask that question. And I think there's, I, I don't want to water that down. I, I think there's room for bringing that feeling to God. But here's the reality. God doesn't give you a shield of faith to prevent you from ever having to deal with adversity. That's not the purpose of the shield of faith. The purpose of the shield of faith is so that you can live and survive in the midst of adversity. Does that make sense? Like, you're going to deal with adversity. Having a shield of faith and having faith in God doesn't mean that everything's gonna be great and roses. It's not. 
but you have a shield of faith so that you can live and survive in the midst of adversity. It's given to you because the enemy is going to bring some fire. It's like a soldier saying, I've got a bulletproof vest on. Why is everybody shooting at me? Right? No, the reason you have a bulletproof vest on is because people are going to be shooting at you. You're on the front lines. That's your job. What do you think is going to happen? And the reason we have a shield of faith is precisely because the enemy is going to shoot. He's going to bring some fire. So then the question becomes, what exactly are the flaming arrows? I, you probably could go in any number of different directions. But I think one aspect that I think is, to me, fits in the flow of Ephesians and, and, and probably fits in the context of, of what Paul is talking about here, I, I would just say is the flaming arrows are, are just those, those passions of the flesh and those, and those, those fleshly desires. So our, our, our passions and our desires, which again, fits in the flow of Ephesians. I'll get to that in just a second. But also when you just think about fire, that's kind of representative of our passions and our desires in, in an example type of way. So it kind of fits with, uh, with the whole theme. Now, when I say passions of the flesh, don't just think sexual sin. It's certainly part of that, but it's not the only aspect of that, because Paul also associates passions of the flesh with things like an obsession and, and a drive after material things, uh, you know, desire to get even with somebody who's done us wrong, or, 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 you know, being eaten up with bitterness and anger and resentment. And so you read through Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, and you see all of these things like the power of resentment and the power of anger and the power of bitterness and the power of idolatry of material things and the power of, of, of getting even and, and holding on to that anger and, and so on and all of these different things, including the power of, of sexual immorality. And so the passions of the flesh can be kind of this broad brushstroke. And the enemy will fire those flaming arrows, trying to ignite those passions and, and, and be destructive in so many ways, ignite our desires, ignite our passions so that it burns all around us. And you think about that example in our, in our lives. How many marriages, how many you know, relationships, how many job situations, how many families have been set on fire and burned up because people's, yours, mine, those around us, our, our passions, our desires got ignited on something that we really wanted or we felt like it was our right to do and it burned up everybody around us. And whatever it was, be it anger or bitterness or greed or resentment or sexual immorality, idolatry of material things, whatever it was. And even if the fire wasn't fatal, how much time and energy and resources did it take to recover from the fire? Now, I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't give everything that we have to, to, to keep our marriages and our families and our, and our job situations and our relationships from burning up when fires do get started. But what I am saying is when those flaming arrows are fired at us and it lands, even if it's not fatal, it creates a diversion that we have to put out other fires and, and, and so that we've got this, this incredible diversion going on that takes us away from doing what we were called to do and advancing the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? And so... Even if, you, even, even if you, you don't die from the flaming arrow, there's fires burning all at your feet that you're having to put out and you're not able to do what God has called you to do. We talked about that a little bit last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He's created you to do good works. You're not able to do them if you're putting out fires all the time. 
And I think this is the story of far too many believers, especially in our American culture. We are dealing with massive diversions in all different areas of our lives because we've got fires that have been ignited by flaming arrows that have been shot our way. They aroused our desires. They aroused our passions. And, 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 and then we acted on those desires. We acted on those passions. And now we've got fires that are out of control. And we're busy trying to stamp it out or even worse, not even noticing or caring that it's burning. And all the while, you and I can't make headway. We can't advance the kingdom of God, both in our own lives and in the world around us, because we're too busy putting out the fires that were ignited because of our passions and desires. Tell me if I'm off base, right? I mean, that's, that's what we're dealing with. What sin does in the life of a Christian soldier is it creates these fires that you and I have to work at putting out, and our energy is diverted from other battles at hand. Now, let me say this. God is not against you and I experiencing pleasure. He's not against you and I having material things. He's not against you and I having wrongs righted when something happens to us. But so often what happens is our enemy takes those passions and desires and he turns around and he ignites them and then he shoots them back at us. And that's what we're dealing with. And you say, well, what does the shield of faith have to do with this? Well, I think that leads to the third thing that I think taking up the shield means. It means trusting in God's instruction and provision, especially when it comes to those, the, those, those passions and desires. Now, when I say trust, I'm not just talking about a head faith here. You know, I, I think every one of us would acknowledge, yeah, I, I, I believe God, I trust God, you know, I want to have faith. Like we would acknowledge that and that's all good and well, but I'm not just talking about an intellectual acknowledgement of trusting in God. I'm talking about walking this out, living out faith, walking by God's instruction and behaving in such a way that we are showing that we trust in his timing and his plan and his purposes, especially when it comes to my desires and my passion. For instance, let me give you an example of this. When you have a headache, what do you do? You take medicine, right? Why? Because you feel like if you take medicine, that's going to make your headache go away. You have faith that by taking the medicine, it's going to help with your headache. Now, if you don't think the medicine's going to help, you don't take it, right? There's no purpose in it. You walk into a room, you flip the light switch. Why do you do that? Because you expect when you flip the light switch that the lights will come on. If you don't expect the lights to come on, you're not going to flip the switch, Right? There's an action that accompanies the faith. It, it can't just be an intellectual thing. And so when you, when you think faith, don't just think head, thought, trust. Think I'm walking this out. It's meant to be lived out and walked out. When I'm using my shield of faith, I'm trusting in God's instruction and provision when it comes to my desires and passions. Think about what Jesus went through when he's in the wilderness. He's start, just about to start his ministry Matthew chapter four, for 40 days, he goes out into the wilderness, wilderness and, and basically Satan spiritually assaults Jesus. Now we have three temptations. Some have surmised that there were more. 40 days seems like a long time to just have three temptations, but we only have three. So what are they? Well, there's a temptation to turn stones into bread. There's a temptation to leap off the top of the temple. And then there's a temptation to bow down before Satan and then receive all all of the kingdoms of the world. So the first temptation, Satan says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, 
again, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. I get hungry after 40 minutes, right? You know, so 40 days in the wilderness, he's probably going to be hungry. Jesus has been given a physical body that needs physical food at some point. Yes, he is God in the flesh, but he's also in the flesh. And so it's not sinful that, that Jesus is hungry. It's not sinful that he it, it needs to eat, but it wasn't God's will for him to eat at that moment in that season of his life. God had a purpose. God had some instruction. And so Jesus had to make a decision. Am I gonna trust in God's instruction? Am I gonna trust in God's plan? Am I gonna trust that God is going to provide for me? And Jesus does. And he says to Satan, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus' answer to the flaming arrows to the, from the enemy was, I'm gonna trust in what God has said. I know what you're saying. I'm gonna trust in what God has said. I'm gonna trust that he's gonna provide. After all, you know what? There's more to life than just bread. There's more to life than just the physical. Then what was God's provision in the end? In verse 11, it tells us that after the devil, angels immediately came and attended to him, probably feeding him right there in the wilderness. God provides after Jesus trusted in God's instruction and provision. Second temptation in verse six, Satan comes to Jesus again. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In other words, Satan says, the angels will lift you up. They'll keep you from harm. You'll be protected. You won't have to go to the end, to the cross, right? You won't have to deal with that. You'll have the recognition you deserve. Others will be drawn to you. You'll have praise because of God's deliverance. You just have to test God's loyalty. Is God gonna be loyal to you? Now, the world did need to be drawn to Jesus. That was this whole purpose in coming. But it wouldn't be through him leaping off a temple and being spared and protected. So would he trust in God's instruction? What was God's instruction? God's instruction was not for him to leap from a temple and be spared. It was to head to a cross so that others could be spared. And what was God's provision? When in the end he goes to the cross and he doesn't stay dead, but he rises from the dead. And in the end, he takes his rightful place at the right hand of the father. That's why Jesus is able to say, it is also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. I'm gonna trust in him. Third temptation, verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Satan says, I'll give you everything that you want and deserve, by the way, you deserve this. If you just worship me. Pretty direct arrow at this point. And it was a call basically to change allegiances with a promise of something that I think we all deal with, instant reward. You don't have to go all the way and do all that you are called to do. You can have everything right here, right now. To have everything you desire right now, instant gratification. There's no need to wait. There's no need to persevere. There's no need to trust and obey. You can have it now, or you can trust in God and in his word and in his promises and in his timing. But the path that Satan was offering was not God's plan. So would Jesus trust in God's plan and God's instruction? God's instruction, obviously, I probably don't need to tell you this, did not involve him bowing down to Satan, okay? And Jesus knew that God was the one who could be trusted, that Satan was a liar. And so Jesus replied, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
What was God's provision in the end, by the way? Paul says in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That was God's plan and that was God's provision. And all three temptations, Jesus's ability to overcome the temptation came from his trust and his faith in the Father's instruction and the Father's provision. That God's word was true, what he said was true and good, and that in the end, God would provide. And that faith and trust shielded him from the enemy's arrows. And that's what faith does. It shields us just like it shielded Jesus. When we can confidently affirm in, in, in who God is, our, confidently affirm our trust, who God is, what he's done, and what he's going to do, Satan's in, arrows have no power. The flaming arrows just kind of flame out because we're trusting and having faith in a God who's bigger than our faith and he's bigger than the flaming arrows of the evil one. Here's the deal. When you and I, when we're trying to walk this out and we're trying to live out trusting in God's provision, trusting in God's instruction, how do I do that? How do I practically walk that out? I think we're gonna have to come to grips with three questions. And it goes, ultimately, it makes all the difference when it comes to us living this out and walking this out. Here's the three questions. And I think we see them in the temptations of Jesus, by the way. Does God care? Is God capable? In other words, does he know what he's doing? And is God faithful? You gotta answer those questions. And the way you answer those questions is gonna make all the difference in whether or not you trust God and you do things his way or you do things your way. Does God care? Does he truly love me? Is he capable? Does he actually know what he's doing, right? And thirdly, is he faithful? In other words, can I count on him? So often what I think happens is when I do things according to my way, instead of according to God's instruction and living in his provision, it's because I've set down my shield of faith and I've in essence said, I don't really feel like God cares about me right now. I'm, I'm not sure he's totally capable. Like, I, I'm not sure he knows what he's doing, so I'm gonna try and do it my way because I'm not sure his way is the best way. And I'm not, I'm not completely sold on the fact that he's faithful and I can count on him, so I just gotta figure out how to do it my way. Now, we may not overtly say those things, right? I'm hoping you wouldn't overtly say those things. Some people do, but our actions say them. That's why we do things our way instead of trusting in God's way, Right? I mean, that's basically what we're saying when we do things our way instead of trusting in his way. But the more you and I say yes to those three questions, does God care? Yes, he does. Is he capable? Yes, he is. Can I count on him? Is he faithful? Yes, I can. The more you and I say yes to those questions, the more the flaming arrows sent by the evil one into our lives meant to destroy us and burn all around us, those around us and the relationships that we have, the more we find those arrows extinguished before they ever hit the ground. So as we wrap up, let me give you three things this morning, just three quick things. I told you I'd get there based on what we see with the Roman soldier shields, how they used it. I wanna make some application to us this morning. And the first thing is this, our shields of faith just like the Roman shields, they needed to soak them in water. They soaked them in water. I think your, your shield and my shield need to be soaked. They need to be soaked in the word of God. You need to soak your shield in the word of God. 
You've got to get your shield wet before you go into battle. Before you walk faith out, you've got to know what your faith is in. And we can talk in general broad brushstrokes and we say, yeah, I have faith in God. What does that mean to you? What does it mean to have faith in God? What does that look like? And we talked about earlier, the power doesn't come from your faith. It comes from the object of your faith, but you got to know what the object of your faith is. You got to know what that's all about. That's why you got to be in the word daily, soaking your shield of faith with the truth of who God is and what he's done and what he's going to do. The Bible often utilizes water to kind of symbolize things like faith and salvation and God's provision. And just like water is essential to physical life, being in the word, soaking our shield daily in the word, God's word, his truth, him as a person and who he is, that's essential to our, to our spiritual lives. It's not just about coming to church and having this head knowledge. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like when we live and flesh faith out? You've got to know what the object of your faith is. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. What's the message? The message is heard through the word about Christ. Again, the power comes from the object of your faith. In fact, in order for you to have faith, there has to be an object. You have to have faith in something. And that something or someone, in this case, is God, as he has revealed himself through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. And so you daily soaking your shield in the word of God. Secondly, I think our shields of faith need to be connected with the shields of others. Our shields of faith need to be connected with the shields of others. We need the testimonies, we need the support, we need the accountability of others in our lives who can overlap our shields and their shields together so that we can set up some kind of defense. Remember, the shield is not just there to look pretty. It's there because it's a purpose for it. The enemy is gonna shoot flaming arrows. He's gonna throw javelins that are on fire. He's going to bring fire and he's going to bring weapons. You gotta be prepared for it. And our shields work best when they are together. I'm glad you're here this morning. Don't get me wrong, but I think far too many Christians live in spiritual isolation from other believers. And we'll come to church and we'll worship together, but we're not in situations where we can, we can hear the testimonies of others. We're not in situations where we get support and encouragement from one another. We're not in situations where we have people in our lives who hold us accountable or where we hold other people accountable. And we come to church and we look the part and I'm glad you're here, don't get me wrong, but if this is all you get and you don't have people in your life that are holding you accountable, if you don't have people in your life that you can hold accountable, if you don't have people in your life who can support you, you can support, that you're hearing their testimony, that you're encouraged by them, then you're living in spiritual isolation and you are so much more vulnerable and so much less strong than when your shields are together. Don't get me wrong, there's there's an element where each of us has our own shield of faith. And we gotta strap it on. We gotta put it on because the enemy's coming at us, but you are so much stronger and you are far less vulnerable when you connect your shields with other shields. And then third, I think our shields of faith are strengthened by stepping out in faith. Now, again, as we talked about, it's it's not your faith, it's the object of your faith that makes the difference, but your faith still plays a part. We still have to walk faith out and live faith out and step out in faith. As Andrew read earlier from Hebrews chapter six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God. How do we please God? By stepping out in faith, by walking faith out as, as we live in and trust in and obey God, the object of our faith. Look, we just got through talking about how we've got to soak our, our shields in, in, in the word of God. We've got to be in God's word daily. But there comes a time when what we do in here or what you do reading your Bible Hopefully you do that daily, soak in your shield. When what we do has to be lived out. It has to be stepped out in faith. You can't just get your shield wet, you need to get your feet wet too. As the old saying goes, if you want to walk on water, you what? Got to get out of the boat. Now you can sit there in the boat and watch everybody else. It's not very effective. Or you can step out onto the water and look, there may be some winds and some waves. But you know what? You're doing it. You're trusting. Why? Because you want to be with Jesus. Because you want to be with him. Because you truly trust in him. But if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. You got to step out in faith and get your feet wet. And look, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying we're going to understand everything, but that's why it's called faith. That's why it's called faith. But let me tell you, faith isn't just believing regardless of the evidence. You know what faith really is? Faith is obeying regardless of the consequence. It's not just believing whether or not I have the evidence that matches up and I see things and I believe. It's obeying, walking out that faith regardless of what that means. I don't know where this leads, but I know that God has my, I know that he is love. I know that he cares. I know he's capable. I know he's faithful. I'm gonna obey him whatever the consequences. That's faith. Because it's more than just a head acknowledgement. It's a life that is walked out. Faith is meant to be stepped out and we strengthen our shields of faith by stepping out in faith. Getting out of the boat, trusting in God's provision, God's instruction. And that step of faith will help strengthen your shield of faith to be able to combat whatever the enemy throws at you. Everybody needs a good shield of faith. Consistently soaked in God's word, connected with other shields, strengthened by stepping out in faith. I love what Proverbs chapter 30, verse five says. Every word of God is flawless. And listen to this next part. He, God, is a shield for those who take refuge in him. You see, not only do you have a shield of faith, but you have a God who is your shield. And when God is your shield and you have a shield of faith in him, I think we can probably relate a little bit better to the words of the prophet Isaiah when he says, no weapon forged against you will prevail. He is our shield. And I have my shield of faith in him.